Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for a TGIF edition of the program, or should we say TG7IF? Leaders of the G7 nations beginning their summit in Hiroshima, Japan, and announcing fresh sanctions against Russia. Ukraine President Zelensky expected to be there this weekend, too, following his attendance at the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia, the very latest on the diplomatic offensive ahead of his nation's military counter-offensive just ahead. Plus, an interview-exclusive Turkish President Erdogan speaking to CNN ahead of that critical presidential runoff vote next weekend. Erdogan defending his view that cutting interest rates helps tame inflation. Hmm. And reiterating his opposition to Sweden joining NATO, among other things. Also flaws in the pause. Fed Chair Jerome Powell set to discuss the U.S. economy today amid fresh concern that the Fed might raise rates again in June, despite some hopes for monetary mercy. Is it a pretend pause or was it a brief pause with a clause? Investors now seeing a near 40 percent probability of an additional interest rate hike as the U.S. data remains strong. Fed rate uncertainty not Denting investor sentiment for now. Selling may and go away, not yet holding sway as investors anticipate a debt ceiling deal. Europe in the green, as you can see there, with the German DAX near a record close. U.S. stock market futures also on the rise, too, with the S&P 500 sitting at nine-month highs. The U.S. House Speaker reiterating that a deal to avert some kind of default is possible by the weekend. We've heard that before, though. Not a moment too soon if they can do it. New data shows the U.S. has less than $70 billion on hand to pay the bills, about half of what it had last week. And bullish sentiment to end the week in Asia, too. Japanese stocks finishing at more than 30-year highs, with the Nikkei now up 18% year-to-date. Strong earnings news giving the bulls there a boost. The new central bank governor also saying today that rates will remain ultra-low, too. Japan's perennial pause continues. No pause, however, in the G7 talks in Japan. And that's where we begin today's show. And it's effectively a G7 plus one with Ukrainian President Zelensky en route to Japan this weekend. It's his first trip to East Asia since the Russian invasion began some 15 months ago. And just hours ago, the G7 leaders agreed to place further sanctions on Moscow. Mark Stewart is in Hiroshima and he has the latest. Good morning, Julia. Certainly a lot to discuss. Let's first talk about President Zelensky's visit here to Hiroshima. Of course, it is symbolic. It's his first visit to Asia since the invasion last year. It also comes at a time when Asia realizes its own vulnerabilities about the geopolitical situation uh, in this region because of what has happened in Europe between Russia and Ukraine. It's also a chance for President Zelensky to establish a relationship with world leaders outside the G7. 
Leaders of India, Indonesia, Brazil are invited guests here. This will be a chance for President Zelensky to talk about them, especially perhaps any kind of economic support that they are lending to Russia and perhaps efforts to quash that as well. Another big point of discussion here today has been sanctions. And G7 leaders have agreed to really uh, beef up sanctions in places that it really matters in the conflict with Russia. The, uh, sanctions involving things such as construction, transportation, manufacturing. That's where the direction of that conversation is going. Also, in the days ahead, we could hear some more conversation about other forms of assistance to Ukraine, a lot of conversation about F-16 fighter planes, also anti-missile systems that have proven to be quite effective in defending Ukraine against Russian forces. Again, Julia, another full day of conversation expected tomorrow. Back to you. Um, thanks to Mark Stewart there. Now, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has already arrived in Saudi Arabia to attend an Arab League summit. A Kiev official says the goal of the trip is to strengthen ties between Ukraine and the Arab world. And joining us now is Jamana Karachi from Istanbul. Jamana, always great to have you with us. The wealthy Gulf nations have provided aid to Kiev, but they're also trying to uh, find a delicate balance between maintaining ties with Russia, of course, and, and Vladimir Putin. It's a delicate balance. It is a very delicate balance, and it is a region, Julia, that has really tried to stay out of the Ukraine war as much as possible, tried to stay uh, on the fence. So it's actually very interesting and bold move by the Ukrainian president showing up in Jeddah, showing up at the summit and addressing uh, those leaders who are gathered there, trying to appeal to them for more support. Also uh, bringing with him the leader of uh, the Ukrainian uh, Muslim community, the Tatars from Crimea, uh, and reminding them, uh, reminding those gathered that they also uh, have been suffering uh, from the annexation of Crimea, from Russian uh, aggression. And, um, you know, President Zelensky, in his address, Julia, did um, really address the issue of uh, how some of these countries have uh, been dealing with the Ukraine war, uh, very much uh, not holding back in his criticism, saying that, you know, some of you here, uh, here among us are some who turn a blind eye to Ukrainian suffering. And he's urging them to, quote, take an honest look. Uh, and he says, even if you have a different view on this war, even if you call it a conflict, uh, he says that uh, most of us here, I hope, are for peace, calling them, uh, calling on them and urging them to join the formula for peace uh, that Ukraine has uh, put forward saying that he needs their support in uh, freeing uh, Ukrainians from Russian jails. Of course, Saudi Arabia, which is holding uh, and hosting this summit, has played a key role recently in the past few months in mediation efforts, uh, brokering a prisoner swap uh, deal. And very interesting, uh, Julia, not only are some of the countries that are gathered there uh, close allies of Russia or have close ties, economic, military ties with Russia, you've also got the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, who is there for his first Arab summit in more than a decade. This is the first time that Bashar al-Assad is being brought back officially uh, into the Arab and regional fold as you're seeing this wave of normalization with the Assad regime that is taking place uh, in this region. So it's very interesting to see 
President Assad, the closest ally of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, in this region at that same summit. We saw him shortly before President Zelensky addressed those attending. He was in the room. Uh, we, uh, we will wait and see when he uh, addresses the summit what Bashar al-Assad will have to say. But I have to tell you that a lot of Syrian activists, Syrian refugees across this region, people watching uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad there at that summit just arriving today to handshakes and uh, red carpet welcome. It is being described as a painful, shameful and shocking day for so many Syrians who, um, you know, in the words of one activist say he should be uh, welcomed at the ICC in The Hague not at an Arab summit after all the atrocities that have been committed over the past more than decade of this war, where he was, of course, backed by Vladimir Putin, backed by Russia, and the reason he survived that war and is there attending as a Syrian president today, Julia. Yeah, how things change. And of course, he's now being clapped by the audience. We've just been watching live pictures there, Jamana, as you were speaking, uh, the president speaking there and now being clapped by the audience. Um, great to have you with us. Thank you, Jamana Karachi there. Now, as we mentioned, G7 leaders are stepping up sanctions on Russia. They're also set to discuss the possibility of supplying fighter jets to Ukraine. Nick Robertson is covering all the developments for us from eastern Ukraine. Nick, good to have you with us. And both aspects of this, I think, will please President Zelensky when he arrives and is at those talks on, on Sunday. I think it was the president of the European Council that said uh, Russian diamonds are not forever. So you get a sense of where they're targeting in terms of further sanctions, but also perhaps the suggestion from the United States that they won't block allies' provision of F-16 jets to Ukraine too. Both good news, I think, for Zelensky. Yeah, I think from Zelensky's position, a lot of the sort of tidy up sanctions that are going on right now really should have been done at an earlier stage. He's been calling for, you know, to full force sanctions from the get go. And, uh, you know, round after round after round of sanctions does come from the European Union. And, and we've just heard more sanctions coming from the British, 86 different entities, Russian entities being sanctioned uh, for their involvement in stealing Ukraine's grain uh, and for uh, military imports that are supporting Russia. Russia's war. So it, it, the, the screws in terms of sanctions are being tightened. But I, for Zelensky, what he really needs in the fight with an urgency is weapons, ammunition supplies. We've heard from European leaders uh, over the over recent weeks that those supplies will be sped up. And every Ukrainian commander you talk to here will tell you that he needs more ammunition. He could do more with more ammunition. So I'm sure Zelensky is carrying that message. But of course, primary is getting the big stuff, and that's the F-16 fighter jet. And again, this has sort of been slowly choreographed in the background, the latest uh, really nod of a head here to what's going to happen. President Biden saying that he wouldn't block uh, allies supplying F-16 fighter planes to Ukraine in the future. But rewind to earlier this year, February in the UK, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak saying that the UK would train uh, Ukrainian pilots on F-16s when there was not even an F-16 on the table to be donated to Ukraine. So the movement was there. And then this last week in Iceland, uh, Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, along with Rishi Sunak, initiating a group uh, that they will be leading to um, help with help Ukraine with procurement of F-16s, to help Ukraine with training of F-16 pilots. So Zelensky's people are saying, look, he needs to be in the room. He needs to be there when these things are discussed at the G7. He has uh, views and arguments uh, and, and the situation in Ukraine to present face to face. That's why he needs to be there. Um, so 
undoubtedly, uh, if he gets to walk away with more good news on the F-16s, he will be happy. But his view, they're absolutely needed this minute right now in the fight, as is everything, because the stakes are so high, because quite literally, uh, he's aware that if the this war, as it is now, stalemates out this year, that's the Russia's advantage. He has to take territory back now this year. Yeah, and your point on the sanctions, very valid to tidy up sanctions and the point that these should have been done earlier and um, some of these loopholes and gaps closed earlier. Um, Nick, I just want to get your take. It's obviously critical to the end game, can I call it that, in terms of the, the conflict in Ukraine is the role that China will or won't, could play in terms of, of mediating and perhaps putting pressure on Russia. It's interesting once again to hear the different tones sort of behind the scenes and the perspective from some of the Europeans that they don't want this G7 to be an anti-China G7 and that the sort of different calibration of how um, China is mentioned at this meeting and referred to. Yeah, I mean, I think guess what for world leaders, all of this is happening all over the world and all mm. these things come together and collide in different places. I think it's important, perhaps in that context, that the G7 doesn't all become about Ukraine or all become about dumping on China, that Zelensky will address uh, the G7 uh, at its later phase. Uh, it's being held in, in, in Japan. That's an important symbolic message uh, for Japan, for, for, for the region. Um, so shaping the message uh, not to be too negative on China is important. But look, look, let's rewind to what Zelensky is doing with the Arab League. He is shaping opinion. He is playing the long game. He will be doing that at the G7 as well by shaping opinion. He hosted the Chinese envoy in uh, Kiev just a couple of days ago, as well as days before meeting with European leaders. In the Arab League meeting, he is fully aware that many of the country's leaders sitting around the table will have been sympathetic to President Putin's view that it's Russia that's the victim, that it's Western hegemony and it's NATO uh, that is attacking Russia. That's a perception that is, that, is that is widely held and understood. Zelensky understands that you change perception slowly. He's, do it, he's trying to do it slowly with China. She is much closer to Putin than he ever is to Zelensky. But just changing that perception, and why do I say the long game? because ultimately peace will be on the table and Zelensky will want as many influential voices around that table on his side. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman will be one of them who's been particularly trying to engage as a, in a peace role in Ukraine uh, with Russia at the moment. So this is the long game uh, and getting it right at the G7, getting it right at the Arab League, um, that's what Zelensky's doing. But going back to what we said before, the immediacy is the weapons. The long game is peace shapes the way Ukraine wants it. That's long-term diplomacy. That's yeah. what's playing out. And those face-to-face -face meetings, such an important component of that. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. Okay, coming up here on First Move, why the head of the international charity Oxfam is calling the G7 nations hypocrites. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. 
$13 trillion. That's what G7 nations owe to developing countries in aid that was promised but never delivered, as well as funding for climate action, according to the global charity Oxfam International. Just to put that in some kind of perspective, Japan's GDP last year was around $5 trillion. Germany's was around $4 trillion. The head of Oxfam saying it's time to call the G7's hypocrisy what it is, an attempt to dodge responsibility and maintain the neocolonial status quo. Joining us now, Oxfam's interim executive director, Amitabh Beha. Great to have you on the show, sir. Those are punchy words. What you're saying is many decades ago, the G7 nations or the richest nations promised $100 billion worth a year in development aid. They didn't pay up. And worse, actually, they're now demanding money back in interest payments. Absolutely. As in, in 1970, the G7 countries decided that they would do 0.7% of their GNI as aid. In 2020, it was decided 100 billions will go in for climate action. And what we see is a huge deficit there. So pretty much, you know, this commitments that have been made, that, that money is still owed by the G7 to the, uh, to the low and middle income countries. On the other hand, what we're seeing is that this, they're constantly being demanding uh, debt in the, in the name of debt, almost 232 million going back to these G7 countries and their rich bankers on a daily basis for the next five years. So that's really the contradiction we are looking at. And, and, and it just doesn't work in the moment of this poly crisis. This is, this is another way of continuing with the, the colonial model that we have. It is a poly crisis, but I, I guess you could also argue that some of these rich nations and certainly the G7 nations are the primary funders of organizations like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, just to pull two examples. And that does mean money is flowing to these countries. Does that at least in some way um, mollify you over what you perceive to be still owed? Or it, would you just say, look, it's, it's an ongoing dereliction of duty in many ways, particularly where climate change is concerned, because these are some of the biggest polluters, too? Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. As in, if you just look at the climate action, uh, the, the poor, the middle-income countries, actually, uh, again, uh, the G7 countries owe them almost $8.7 uh, trillion. Uh, in terms of the climate action, the crisis that these countries have had to face in the last uh, decade or so. So even if you look at the IMF, the World Bank, the resources that are going are essentially in the form of loans. And very often then you're looking at uh, a debt crisis in these countries. Whereas if uh, you actually look at debt cancellation, there's a possibility that these resources then can be invested in education, in health, in, in uh, roads, infrastructure, agriculture. And then that could be so critical in these times when you're looking at a hunger crisis, you're looking at a fuel crisis, you're looking at a inflation uh, cost of living crisis. So it's pretty much really turning the case. The case has to be right, as in G7 is doing the right thing by focusing on climate, on hunger. However, the solutions are very, very inadequate, as, as in we, we need to really look at turning the case and start looking at what the G7 owes actually to the low and middle income countries. If you could be at that table that's going to take place, because I've been talking throughout the show already that um, President Zelensky is going to be there. There are 
to your point, and you made it in your first answer, a polycrisis taking place. It means challenges for developed nations as well as developing nations. What would you say to these leaders and also the citizens, I think, of these countries? Because in many cases, these elected officials are chosen by their citizens to help them individually, uh, and they do have to make choices. Absolutely. As, as a, I would say that these countries need to recognize that we are living in the era of polycrisis. And we have an economic system which is essentially completely rigged in favor of the super rich. And that's unacceptable. As in, just to give you again another figure from our Oxfam report, all the new wealth created in the last one decade, two thirds of that went to the top 1%. So it's, it's very clear that this is not working. This is also the time where we have seen extreme wealth and extreme poverty rise simultaneously in the last 25 years. So at this juncture, debt cancellation is what I think is absolutely critical uh, uh, for these countries and for the citizens also to build pressure on, on looking at solutions, bringing inequality, the, the unjust, changing the unjust economic order. And, and I would actually say that there is growing traction even for uh, paying fair, wage, uh, pay, fair wages so investments in, in um, social security, investments in education, investments in health. On the other hand, uh, willingness to tax your super rich. You know, again, just, just to give you a, a, a figure, or, or almost like 900 billion could be raised if you just do a 2% tax on the millionaires and 5% on the billionaires in the G7 countries. And, and that can transform uh, uh, the realities of, of, of this world. And the whole idea of 2030 as the sustainable development goals, zero hunger could be achieved. So it, it's not a pipe dream, but we need serious, sincere political action uh, from the G7 countries. You know, I could ask you all sorts of questions based on that answer, but I want to be specific, actually, because I was at the um, spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, and they were talking to some of the biggest creditor nations, including China, about um, debt write-offs, as you mentioned, um, and it was a uh, response. Um, but they were talking about debt suspension, which is not ideal, I agree, but it's something. What role does China play in this, particularly in the global south as an enormous creditor? And under, in certain cases, very um, lacking in transparency terms to the debt. Amitab, what would you say to, to China? Because they're not at the G7 table, but they're also and can play a huge role in this too. Sure. You know, what, what I would say as an Oxfam's message is loud and clear, and it is to all the countries which are uh, rich countries, which are giving credit, so-called credit to the poor countries. And I think it's, it's important to recognize, as I said, I started by you have to turn the case, as in, it, it's not just about China. As in, look at what happened during the pandemic. We were looking at uh, uh, hoarding of vaccines. And, and that, even during this, this completely unprecedented crisis, uh, was unacceptable. So in, in, I think it's about fundamentally changing what the political priorities are. And I, I was also there during the spring meeting. As in, one of the things Oxfam is saying that shared prosperity is not the, the right goal. It's inadequate. We need to be looking at the questions of inequality also as front and center for, for the bank to move ahead. 
Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree more with you. Um, Amitabh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much for your perspective and, and reminding us that many important discussions need to take place at the G7 and trust is required to be built, I think, to your point about the vaccines. Thank you, sir. Coming Thank up you. after you. the break, a determined man, Turkish President Erdogan's unorthodox, I could call it other things, approach to inflation. In our exclusive interview, he insists rate cutting is the answer to high inflation. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has vowed to continue with his policy of cutting interest rates if he's re-elected as a way to reduce the nation's 40 to 50 percent official inflation rate. The country goes to the polls on May 28th in the presidential runoff vote. Uh, Becky Anderson asked him about that policy in this exclusive interview. Just take a listen. Do you concede that your determination to reduce rates in order to push growth in this country is failing the people of Turkey. And will you change course? Can the people of Turkey, if you're re-elected, expect to change an economic policy? When it comes to economic policy, we are following quite a different trajectory than the rest of the world. I have a thesis that interest rates and inflation, they are directly correlated. The lower the interest rates, the lower the inflation will be. So this is my thesis. The interest rate is the reason and the inflation is the consequence. And I'm an economist. And as an economist, during my prime ministry, I have done it. But your economic policy, your decision to cut rates as opposed to raise rates, which is the orthodox way of um, cutting inflation, comes at a huge cost to the people of Turkey and to your credibility, quite frankly, on the international markets. Experts worry that your current policies will continue to hurt the lira, could lead to hyperinflation, economic instability and financial turmoil. You argue that your policy is good for trade, for tourism and for foreign direct investment. But that is risky at best and reckless at worst. That's the view of the international market. So I, I ask you again, can Turkey expect to change an economic policy if you're re-elected? We have seen results in terms of the steps that we have taken. In this country, the inflation rate will come down along with the interest rates so that we will come to a point where people will be relieved. I say this speaking as an economist. This is not an illusion. No change in policy if you're re-elected? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because I got results. When? When I was prime minister, thanks to the implementation of this policy. I will see results again, and I know I will see the results again. Russia is doing exactly this. They're reducing the interest rates and they are trying to shorten up the inflation rate as well. This is what we are going to observe. Please do follow me over in the aftermath of the elections, and you will see that the inflation will be going down along with the interest rates. I mean, officially, the, the inflation rate is around about 40% at the moment. Some say it could be as high as... 100%. But again, do you not worry about the short-term impact to the Turkish economy? It's a genuine question. 
We have surmounted challenges in the past. We are strong right now as Turkey. Per capita income used to be around $3,600. But right now, it's reached $10,650 per capita income. This is showcasing something. The GDP per capita reached that level. The purchasing power of the people increased. And this number is bound to reach $15,000 in the next few months. And we are going to move on even stronger. And Becky joins us now from Istanbul. Becky, brilliantly done, actually. I, I, the exchange of, of information, because you were making the point very correctly that you can reduce interest rates to help boost growth in the short term with a weaker currency, but the inflation rate says the policy's not working, but nothing's changing until a real crisis happens, a bigger crisis. Well, this is the point, isn't it? I mean, how big does the crisis get? Right. The central bank is in full defence mode ahead of this runoff, trying to avert a further weakening of the Turkish liras, which, as I, I was discussing there with President Erdogan, is, is causing a real swinging cost of living crisis here at home and a real credibility gap on the international markets with international investors. But for those who might have hoped to have heard a more sort of, <clears throat> I don't know, chastened President Erdogan, somebody who, who was sort of, you know, understanding that he's unorthodox, excuse me. <coughs> mm. You're going to have to let me have a glass of water, sorry. Yeah, don't worry. Know. I'll come back to you. Yeah, grab some water as well. I, I can, can. Is somebody there to bring it to you? Because I can, uh, I can buy you some time. I, to your point, if, if investors were hoping for a chastened, as you were going to say, um, President Erdogan there in light of the election result and uh, sort of not winning as I'm sure he would have hoped um, in the first round, um, they certainly didn't get it. Um, has we ma have we managed to get us some water or should we? Um, OK, we're, we're going to buy us some time. Um, Becky, are you back? She's back. Um, I guess what I will yeah, do is make... Yeah, you've got me back. Yeah, Apologies. well done. Well done for handling that. I guess the question is um, to draw the distinction between the opposition leader and how economic policy would change under them and that they would perhaps say, look, the central bank has to be independent. We have to allow interest rates to rise simply to um, get inflation under control, as you said, above 50 percent, perhaps <coughs> even in unofficially 100 percent, according to some sources. And I've heard the same. Uh, would the policy yeah. be different? if the election result is different. And you're making a really good point. You're making a really good point. And I'm back. There you go. <laughs> it's one of these things, isn't it? Um, you're making a really good point. Um, the opposition has said that they want to see an alternative vision when it comes to the uh, economy here. And they would want to go back to a much more sort of orthodox economic policy with an independent central bank. After all, uh, President Erdogan has changed his central uh, bank governor four times since uh, just before 2019. So they want a return to independence. They want to return to sort of the independence of state institutions as a whole, uh, as a whole in this alternative vision uh, for the opposition here. Um, and they, and they, they're saying that this unorthodox policy simply doesn't work either, they say, in the short term or in the long term. And I think what's really important to note here uh, that the opposition... Is talking about this across the board. They're saying they want a return to independent state institutions. 
Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to. No, I know. I'm going to have to stop. I, I, I know. Don't worry. I, I was, I was tempted to you ask you about Ed. <laughs> no, no. It was phenomenal. You talked about Russia. We're going to show more of it in the next hour, Becky. I'm, I'm going to do the teas for you. Um, yeah, <laughs> go you. get a cup of tea. Water, water doesn't cut it. And thank you for persevering. Will do. Will oh, do. Becky Anderson, there. Thank you. And as I mentioned, you can see the full interview on Connect the World. She's a trooper. Right after this show. Now coming up after the break, we've all had emails from scammers fishing for passwords littered with typos and grammatical errors. Soon they'll be harder to spot though, and it's all thanks to the dark side of generative AI. The details next. Welcome back to First Move. The Wall Street Bulls hoping to end the week with a Friday flourish. Modest early gains today for the major averages stateside amid hopes for a debt ceiling deal in D.C. I'm getting repetitive on that. Stocks in the news include, though, Morgan Stanley. CEO James Gorman announcing he'll be leaving the role within the next 12 months to become executive chairman. Also, uh, heavy machinery maker Deer, one of the early winners. Deer saying, have no fear. It's raising profit forecasts due to strong orders. And from Deer to a social media Odeer, a group of TikTok users now suing the state of Montana over its vote to ban the app. They say the ban, the first in the nation, is a violation of the First Amendment. The Montana governor says the ban is needed to keep user data out of Chinese hands. Remember, TikTok is owned by the Chinese firm ByteDance. And if you remember on the show yesterday, we were saying around 20% of the population of the state is apparently on TikTok. Wowzers. All right, let's move on. Whether it's phishing for personal data, credit card fraud, or an AI-driven bot attack, the global cost of cybercrime could reach $8 trillion this year. That's according to an estimate by Cybersecurity Ventures. In the UK alone, one estimate says consumers lose nearly $3,000 a minute to online fraud. The cost clearly already eye-watering, but just wait until generative AI gets going. Those badly worded emails full of spelling and grammatical errors could soon be a distant memory, of course. The warning coming from Signified. It's an end-to-end fraud protection company that says it can help retailers detect cybercrime with minimal impact on the consumer experience. And joining us now, Raj Ramanand. He's the CEO of Signified. Raj, great to have you with us. Um, That just gave us a flavor of the cost of this kind of cybercrime. Just allow us to look through a prism of what this looks like when you enhance activity with generative AI. How bad could this get? First of all, Julia, thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Um, You talk about this in a really interesting way. Phishing is an end to a sort of means, if you want to call it the other way. And what are people trying to actually accomplish? They're trying to be able to get your financial information so that they can commit fraud. And for most people, they don't really know that ultimately when somebody buys something online with a stolen credit card, the retailer is responsible for the liability associated with it. And so because of that, retailers put in a lot of friction in the checkout experience so that ultimately they don't just decline the bad people and turn them away, but they're turning away a lot of the good people. And so you talk about the $8 in, in fraud. 
but there's actually trillions of dollars being lost in turning away good people. And ultimately, that's where AI can help in, in, in turning over some of those un, uncertain transactions. Oh, that's so interesting. So that's using AI to fight AI. So there's two points there. To your point, there's the lost business as a result of already trying to filter out what might be fraudulent activity, but also the fact that actually identifying fraudulent activities um, going to get harder. I mean, for me, I get texts all the time saying your Netflix account has been cancelled because you haven't paid. Here's this link. But the grammar, the um, sentence structure, there's words missing. I know it's phishing. Same with emails. I know it's just one path. But for me, this is one where if those emails and can be very quickly sorted out with generative AI, and we've seen this already being used, um, people are going to fall for it. This, this sort of worries me. This one access point in particular worries me. You're right. I mean, we're all used to the Nigerian scams from back in the day right. where somebody says you're caught in a little cave somewhere and your mom needs to be able to bail you out. And I think that's a common problem. But yeah. if you recall, one of the major issues with it was always the grammar and the text and people quickly recognizing that this was bad. But with a lot of the large language models out there today, you can quickly ask a question to the model to be able to say something like, hey, tell me how to write this in the format of it coming from a great company as well. So it looks like a customer service email. And that then translates into the ability to make a you know, a wrong decision, effectively giving you your information, your financial information to you, for you to then go and commit fraud online. Yeah. And then they use your credit card. And I'm sure with generative AI can make all sorts of purchases before you've even spotted there's a problem. Okay. So you've also laid out why retailers need your help or should want your help. One, because they're liable and two, because they want to also make sure that they're maximizing business and transactions that they do do that aren't fraudulent. What specifically do you provide and how do you prevent that sort of blockage for for customers that do want to purchase and, and reduce friction? It's a great question. And so there's two parts to this. When you think about it in the in in the bigger scheme of things, the reason that most of fraud is missed today, effectively causing more declines of good people, is because the systems or the financial systems between the retailer, the uh, the financial institution and the consumer are all, all not connected together. And so Fundamentally, if you change the question to ask what is different, the card present rails, the, the world in the on offline world where I go buy something offline is the similar rails that we use for the online world. And over the past 20 years, nobody has actually gone back and changed the mm-hmm. way the online systems work. And so by the time a transaction, somebody, let's say you go buy something online and try to complete that transaction, by the time the bank makes a decision on that, you you have very limited information to be able to say this is Julia and I can therefore say she's a good person. And so what happens is the, the banks pass on the liability all the way upstream back to the merchant. And so what you're trying to do, number one, is connect all these old systems back together to be able to say right at the point of the retailer, I can tell you that this is Julia and therefore I don't need to go off and make these wrong decisions about turning her away. So that's number one. Number two is bringing together all the data across these networks to be able to, 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 to predict what is good and bad. And that's where the AI components come together okay. to be able to make this a real, real element in the business. Yeah. So, so predicting what might be suspect, even if um, on face value, it doesn't, it doesn't look so. Um, what, what do you think of an AI pause? 
What do you think about the some of the biggest players in this industry saying, look, we need to pause to understand how to regulate this, to have a conversation about it. Does that make any sense to you as someone who's sort of actively engaged and understands the workings and the speed at which I think generative AI progress is moving? Yeah, there's a good way to look at that. You take a leaf off of the, say, the power generation industry. You've got solar panels and you've got um, you've got your nuclear reactors. Ultimately, you don't have to regulate the solar side of the world as much as you have to regulate the nuclear reactor, simply because there's a lot of bad that can come out of a nuclear reactor that you have to regulate for. And so there's an absolute need to look at this in the same light. AI can have good and bad, and so you have to look at regulating it. I think it's absolutely important. But the second piece that people are not talking about as important in in the AI world today is that just because you regulate the good people, you don't have control about regulating the bad people. And so (laughs) as much as you assume you get that done from the, you know, the good states and everybody else, there's going to be these bad states that are still out there mining the information, using these large language models to be able to commit fraud. And if you lose time in this regulation, you allow the bad guys to win. And so effectively, the way I think about it is you have to regulate, but you have to think about this in a measured way so that you don't let the bad get ahead of the good in the mix. Yeah, in in terms of your business as well, the the bad guys only have to be right once. You have to be right every single time um, in order to stop them. It's sort of asymmetric risks, which we have to think about broadly and on an individual basis as well. Um, Are you profitable? As a company, how quickly are you adding companies that are going, oh, my goodness, we need to protect ourselves? Well, there's two things that drive this effectively. One is the, the e-commerce world is growing at an extremely rapid pace. No matter what we think, when you look at it, the bigger scheme of things, people are going to continue to buy online. And that is the future of where the world is going. And so we're part of that journey. The second is the current state of the world, if you look at the economy and where it's going, e-commerce has started to grow closer to about four, four and a half percent a year. The fraud pressure online is growing at 19 to 20 percent <laughs> on an annual basis. And if you look at the types of fraud that are happening, mostly consumer abuse is on the rise. A lot of good reasons for it. People are out of jobs. People are looking for ways to, do, to, to kind of make a living. And sometimes you know, the fraudsters find a way to, to leverage themselves in that. And so as these two things rise, one, e-commerce and the amount of fraud in the world continues to go, our business just is in the right place at the right time to make that happen for them. Yeah. Companies just have to uh, recognize the problem and be willing to invest at a, a difficult economic time too. Um, Raj, great to have you with us. Thank you. The CEO of Signified there. All right, coming up, traveling by private jet without the cost to the climate. Dubai-based firm JetX says... It may have the answer. Their story next. Welcome back to First Move. Call it Jet Set Regret. If you're lucky enough to be able to afford a private jet, perhaps you're not so keen, though, on the potential environmental impact. One private jet firm wants to change all that and make the aspirational more sustainable, as we hear in today's Think Big. Whether spending millions of dollars to cruise the high seas in a mega yacht or flying across the skies in a private plane, the jet set lifestyle is all about glitz and glamour. But when it comes to the environment, there are some things that even money can't buy. Well, not easily. 
We are seeing a lot of people choose to fly privately, but I think we need to embrace the concept of sustainability. So when you think about this in the context of private aviation, you can imagine all of the different applications of social and economic benefits that the industry is producing. But in order to embrace the good, we need to understand and reduce the negative environmental impacts. Adil Mardini is the founder and CEO of JetX, which has more than 30 terminals around the world. The Dubai-based company is working alongside dozens of other big names in aviation to meet an ambitious goal set by the International Air Transport Association of reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050. The first thing that will come to my mind, my family, my children, my grandchildren, like, okay, how the, how the world will be for the coming 20, 30, 40 years, how we can work together with everyone to make the climate change less effect for our life and for our future. Private jets can be 5 to 14 times more polluting than commercial planes and 50 times more polluting than trains, according to data from European nonprofit Transport and Environment. But small steps are slowly leading to big changes in the sector. We already started to convert all our terminals around the world to be green terminal. We'll start with four locations to be fully green. Jetex unveiled plans last year to launch what it calls the world's first fully pure green private terminal at Berlin's Neuhardenberg Airport, which is home to one of the biggest solar farms in Europe. The company also now rents out planes that aren't as harmful to the environment while exploring the use of electrically powered aircrafts. And through a partnership with Finnish oil company Nesti, it's deploying sustainable aviation fuels made out of renewable waste and residual raw materials. We expect that maybe 60 to 70 percent of emissions reductions will come from the integration of sustainable aviation fuels. But today, accessibility is limited, so it's not available at every airport. We would love to see private aviation to move more quickly on the adoption of sustainable aviation fuels because that could create economies of scale that could make it more affordable and easier for the other sectors to then move to integrate sustainable aviation fuels. So while the luxury of flying privately is an experience that's likely to top off the bucket lists of most travelers, companies like Jetex now carry the ultimate responsibility of making sure the convenience of private aviation can also be sustainable. And finally... On first move, most New Yorkers will tell you that they've had that sinking feeling at one time or another. Turns out, though, they may be right. Here's a live look at Manhattan, which is apparently struggling under the weight of itself. That's according to a new geological survey that skyscrapers are so heavy they're weighing it down at a rate of around one to two millimetres a year. So I make that what, five centimetres every 10 years. That makes sense. No, two centimeters every 10 years. Oh, my goodness. The combined weight of all these buildings is nearly 1.7 trillion pounds. And I have on good authority that's 140 million elephants. The study comes as the Army Corps of Engineers tries to find ways to prevent the city from being submerged in future natural disasters. I think the water level's risen 22 centimetres since 1952, so none of this is good news. Sorry for that on a Friday. That's it for the show. You'll be pleased to know if you've missed any of our interviews today. They'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you on Monday.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.